Luke chapter 11. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll look at the first um, 13 verses. Our precious Savior has this for us in his word. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we've already sung it, but now we pray it. Lord, we need you. Every hour, we need you. You, Jesus, are our defense. You are our righteousness, and we need you. And speak to us. Open our eyes and open our hearts and open our minds that we could know who you truly are, God, as you have been revealed in your person, Jesus Christ, and in your word. Help us to believe that. Make us people who are devoted to prayer. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you. You could be seated. Well, like um, many churches, we this morning are starting our, are making our way into uh, a new sermon series. And so for the next three weeks, here's what we're going to be doing. I'm going to preach one sermon over three weeks. So it's going to be, I don't know, an hour and 15, an hour and 20, an hour and 30 minute sermon that is going to be preached in three different parts. And so I'm not going to answer all the questions that you have about prayer. You're going to walk away this morning, you're going to go, what about this? And what about that when it comes to prayer? Um, but nevertheless, we're going to cover a ton um, that there is about prayer. And prayer really is a, um, it, it's a, it's a mystery. Like the Bible is filled with mysteries. It's one of the, some of the language that Paul loves to talk about. He says, this mystery is made known. Well, last week we talked about the mystery that is how, how marriage, um, how marriage fits into the image of God and his people. And this too, this issue of prayer really is a mystery. I mean, when you really think about what prayer is, then then why would God establish it? Why would the all-knowing, all-wise, all-sovereign, all-powerful God choose, he would ordain to run his world 
in response to the prayers of his people. Why would he do it like that? Why would he establish it in that way? And yet that's what prayer is. That prayer really is, it's comprehensive. It's not really complex. I mean, prayer prayer is talking to God. I mean, ask you, uh, what is prayer? And you'd say, well, prayer is just talking to God. And that would be true, but prayer is more than just talking about, uh, just more than talking to God. Prayer's deeper than, than those types of things, uh, than just us talking to God. In fact, I could give for you in the front end a, a comprehensive and somewhat complex definition for prayer, but instead, this is what I'm going to do. Throughout these next three weeks, I'm just going to make little statements of prayer is, in order for us to really massage deeply and think about, okay, prayer is this one thing, and then we're going to talk about that one thing, and then we'll move on to something else. And so we're going to kind of build that out. Like this morning, I got four or five of those little statements of what prayer is. And so let's run to the text, because in this text, Jesus is teaching us not just that we should pray, but he's teaching us how to pray. And this morning, I really want to answer the question of what is prayer, or at least begin to answer that. So in the Bible, what we see here in Luke, the 11th chapter, let me make a couple of cursory notes about um, from verses 1 all the way down to 2a, to the part where Jesus gets into the model of prayer. It says for us, Luke records, it says, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, and so a couple of notes that we can make is number one is, Jesus praying reveals God's nature to us. So what we see here in this text isn't just Jesus setting an example for us as disciples that we should be a praying people. Like we could say that if Jesus, the perfect son of God, if we find him all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the gospel accounts, we find Jesus praying early in the morning, up on a mountain, late at night, we in a garden, we see Jesus time and time again, Jesus is praying, we have his prayers captured for us in the text of scripture. We could say, how much more should we be praying? But not only is Jesus our example, but Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. And what he's revealing to us in this, when we see Jesus praying, what we see in this is we see that God is relational. Now, let me say it like this. Here's, this, this might be helpful for you. I say this not as a matter of theology, but a matter of illustration. God is an extrovert, not an introvert. Now, I know some of you, most of you, a lot of you in here, you're introverted, and you may think, hey, I'm being godlike in my introversion, but you're not. God is an extrovert. And again, that's not a matter of theology. I could take that too far. I'm saying this as a matter of of illustration, that God is relational, and he relates to us. And Jesus shows this, that when we see Jesus here on this earth, and we see Jesus praying, Jesus isn't doing anything new or anything uncommon that he hasn't always done all the way back before time ever began. That in order to really understand even prayer, it begins with a knowledge of who God is. And God is a perfect trinity. He is triune. He exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that divine order, in the trinity, in the triune God, there is constant and eternal communion of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that doesn't, that's not broken when Jesus comes and puts on flesh and comes to this earth. And so what we see when Jesus is praying, what we're seeing is Jesus illustrating and showing us that God is a relational God and God in prayer is inviting us as his children to commune with him. So prayer is, it is communion with God. 
Prayer isn't just how you get something from God. It's more important than just you getting something from God. Recently, uh, the, one of the, the pastors, uh, Jen Johnson at Bethel Church in Redding, California, recently she said, like, when I think of God, I like to imagine um, Aladdin and the genie in the bottle. And what she said in that statement is she's just made heresy, blasphemy, and idolatry in one statement when she said that. That God is so much more. He is not a genie in the bottle. He's the thrice holy God of the universe. And this thrice holy God that is unlike us and unlike anything you can possibly imagine in his holiness and in his love and in his benevolence in prayer, he's inviting us who are weak and us who are imperfect to commune with him. We'll talk more even about that next week, about prayer is communion. And that's the point, the point that Jesus is getting at even in this, um, even in this story that he gives. The two stories is this, that God is a resourceful and he's loving and he's available and he's your father and you have access. Those of you, especially those of you who are born again, adopted into his family, you have access to him The next point I want to see just from the introduction, like we're going to be in this text for two weeks and you'll see why. The second point is this, is that you can learn to pray. Like I think that's most of us, there's a tension that we feel in that. Like I've met some people who for them prayer was easy. They just say, hey, prayer, prayer, that's simple. Like I find it hard to read the Bible or to understand the Bible, but praying is something easy. I know that hasn't always been my story, that sometimes prayer can feel like it's something difficult, but yet what we see here is that prayer is something that you can learn and you can learn to do it. You can learn to do it effectively. When the disciple comes and asks Jesus, makes this request, he asks Jesus, Jesus, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Notice what Jesus' response. Jesus' response isn't a stern rebuke. Jesus' response isn't, oh, ye of little faith. I mean, he'll say that to his disciples from time to time. Oh, ye of little faith, but not here at this request. What Jesus does is Jesus acquiesces and he teaches. He gives a model for how to pray and then two illustrations that teach us even more about prayer. And the truth is what prayer is for us. And those of you here in the room that you've said, hey, I've tried to pray, but I couldn't pray. I've tried to cultivate an active, a, a robust prayer life, but it just doesn't seem to happen. It just always fizzles out. Then what I'm saying to you is this, that prayer is a lifelong discipline for us to enjoy We get to enjoy it, and we get to enjoy the journey of it and learning how, and we got to see Jesus as a patient a patient rabbi, a patient teacher, a patient savior who's with his people, with his disciples, teaching us time and time again throughout scriptures how to pray. Number three, for the disciple, though prayer is assumed, notice what he says, when you pray, say. Not if you pray, but when you pray, say. And that's the aim, that's the the very focus of this time that we're spending on prayer. It's to help us to see and to feel in a fresh way how important prayer is so that you and I would resolve, we would be dedicated and devoted to being a praying people, praying disciples. That is not an oxymoron, putting those two together. Praying disciples, they can't be separated. Those things are true. And here's the truth. I want the next three sermons to be the least condemning sermons you've ever experienced. I mean, it's that time of the year where we're just open up the door to all sorts of like guilt and condemnation and some of it hits rightly and some of it doesn't hit rightly, right? I mean, I'm on day number four of of giving up um, 
some beverages, right? I'm, I'm giving up pop for, for the last, I made, I made it four days, Woo, right? I had salmon and broccoli for supper last night only because a, a, a dear sister fixed it for me, not because I cooked it for myself, but I, I, you know, we're into that. Some of you are thinking about that. You're thinking about, you're looking at your life. You're thinking, how do I get my spending in order? How do I get my eating in order? I probably need to exercise. I need to get more organized. I need to, do, I need to, and in that list, you can also bleed over to spiritual things and you can say like, gosh, I stink at praying or I stink at reading. And all of those things are great opportunities for us. But listen, I want these next sermons to be so non-condemning, but yet this is what I want them to be. I want them to be instructive in how to do it. And I also want them to be compelling, compelling us to do it. Like I want these next three weeks that we spend talking about prayer, I want them to have like the, uh, the MSG effect. So do you know what MSG is? It's a, it's a food additive. It happens in some foods naturally, but then like the, the Chinese figured out a way to extract it. And so what they do is they add it into their foods. It was, it's what makes the Asian buffet so yummy. So it's really not necessarily the cooking itself that makes it so good and so yummy. It's this additive. And what this additive does, it makes your taste buds come alive. It enlivens your, your taste buds. It makes your mouth salivate. So it triggers your brain to say, man, this really tastes good, whether it does taste good or not taste good. Now that's the illustration for prayer and for this. Now prayer actually does taste good. But what I want here is I want this to be compelling. I want our mouths to water for a need and a desire when we think about prayer to say like, I can't wait to get up in the morning and to pray. I can't wait to go to bed at night and to pray. That's what we're talking about here. That's why we're talking even about this. I wanted to have the MSG effect. What we see in 2B, back to the text, all the way down into verse 4 is we have Jesus' model for prayer. The complementary text for this is Matthew 6. And next week, put a pen in that, next week we'll get into Luke 11, uh, what I say, 2 through 4. And again, we'll get into Matthew uh, chapter 6 as we talk about Jesus' model prayer. It's often called the Lord's Prayer, but it's not Jesus praying Here's what's happening is he's teaching his disciples how to pray. What Jesus does and the focus that I want to have this morning is I want to look at these two stories, these two parables about prayer. <clears throat> and here is the key. The key is this, that your understanding of God and who you are to him shapes your prayer life. That's the foundation. The foundation of everything begins with our understanding of who God is. And so this is foundational even when we talk about prayer. In the text, in verses 5 through 8, we have a story of a persistent friend. Give you a little background to the text that hospitality in this time and in this culture was a huge deal. It was a huge deal, and hospitality meant a lot to those people. And what you have is you have this friend who we will call the host. So they're the host that is in their, in their home, presumably asleep. And then they have a friend, a guest who shows up and who pops in one night at midnight, knocking on the door. He lets the friend in at, at midnight. Now, I know some of you in here are night owls. If you come knocking on my door at midnight, 
Like, it better be an emergency. You knock on my door at midnight. If you knock on my door at midnight lately, it means I will have been asleep for the last four hours. That's what it means. But I've only got five more hours to go before I'm going to get up. That's what it means, right? So I'm, I'm an early riser, but I also am a early go-to-better. That's what I do. And so nevertheless, this friend shows up at midnight, but the same thing is true in this culture. I mean, they didn't have, there wasn't late, late night TV for them to fall asleep to. There wasn't like, there weren't night owls. For those of you that have been with me um, to places like Haiti and third world countries, you see this, like it's, the, the sun goes down early, right? And, and when the sun goes down, there's not much to do and electricity and places like that is expensive. And so, you know, it's time to, time to go to bed. And so 6.30, 7 o'clock, Folks start checking out, going to bed, and the same thing is true in this culture. So this person comes, shows up, knocking on the door. Now, the reason why they're probably knocking on the door is because it's hot. Maybe it was hot during the time. They can't travel during the day because of the heat, and so oftentimes they would travel at night. And so this friend, the guest who's been traveling all night, shows up at the friend's house, knocking on the door. He comes in, but there's a problem. The problem is, and again, hospitality is a huge deal. It's not just a a friendship obligation, but there's also a religious obligation, a religious duty in this. Then in the law, they're taught as the people of God to be like God, to emulate God, and to be a hospitable people and to bring people and invite people into your home. And so this person comes in and here's the problem. The friend's hungry, missed supper, been traveling late at night. A second problem is, is that the family has already consumed all of the bread. And so in this culture, what they would do early in the morning, they would rise up and early in the morning, they would make bread and that bread would be a staple for them throughout the entire day. So this bread isn't just like for us, we think about yeast rolls that go, you know, with your roast and your potatoes. Some of you are going to get hungry, right? Your roast and your potatoes and all those things that you got yeast rolls as a side, but for them in this culture, like sometimes bread may just serve as a meal. Take some bread and some some olives, some dates, smash up together, a little oil, little fruit, preserves, put on that, eat that. Now, now we're getting real hungry, right? That would sometimes serve as, a, as an evening meal for these people. And so this person's hungry. And again, there's a desire to be hospitable. And so the host says, I know what I'll do. I'll go down the street and I'll knock on the door of my other friend. And so he goes down the, do- down the road and at midnight, right, knocking on the door. And of course, it's dark inside. And then this voice of this other friend comes from outside the door and we'll pick up the story. We'll pick up the story there. I think I'm all the way down into, I think I'm in verse number seven. The voice from inside says, and he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. Now, they didn't have doors like we have doors. It's not doors with three hinges that easily open and close that, you know, you can almost open and close them without, without a sound. No, this was something different. Instead of hinges, they would have interlocking rings, and so these doors would be noisy. Again, those of you that have been in third world countries, you can understand this. For those of us that have been in Haiti, we see this, and even in the guest house where we stay, it's a huge ordeal to go through to lock up the doors at the night. You've got an outer gate that's got to be shut, an inner door that's got to be shut, an inner gate that's got to be shut, and then a door that's got to be shut. Similar way, they have this family that's on the inside, and they say to them, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and look at this, and my children are in bed with me. Those of you in here that have children that practice co-sleeping, you've been looking for a verse, right? 
You've been looking for a rationalization. Next time the, the you know, pediatrician or a friend gets on you about the co-sleeping, putting your, tucking your kids in the bed with you at night, be like, don't do that. You go, hey, I'm just being biblical. You got a verse now, right? Right here it is. And so he says, not only that, listen, I'm not getting up. I'm already tucked in. And listen, if you wake up one of these kids, so help me. That's what the person on the inside says. I cannot get up and I cannot give you anything, but then look in verse number eight. And I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And then we have in verses nine and 10, as we have Jesus's application for this parable. In verse number nine, look at it. He says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now let's unpack it. What's the point of the story? Well, I don't think the point of the story is that persistence pays off with God. I know some of you may have heard it taught that way, but I don't really, I think we're missing the actual point of the story. Yes, we need to be persistent in prayer. And yes, we can be persistent in prayer, but I think there's a deeper meaning in this teaching. It's not teaching you that sometimes you have to get half rude with God. It's not teaching you that, you know, tap into your inner toddler and just keep on badgering God. And sooner or later, God's going to give you what you want. That's not what it's teaching at all, I don't believe but this is what I believe it's teaching us about prayer. It's this, that prayer is privilege. Now, I want you to notice that I didn't put an A in there. We can't say prayer is a privilege, and it is a privilege. But what we see here, though, is prayer is privilege. That you, as God's child, you have complete and total access to God. See, as you think about the parable, where is God in the parable? What character illustrates or represents God? And if you believe that it's just teaching you that persistence pays off, then you would probably say, well, that's simple. In the story, the the person, the friend who is asleep, the friend who is all tucked in, the friend who has some means but is unwilling or reluctant to share that means the friend who is behind the closed door, the fastened door, the friend who has to be coaxed into helping. But then let me ask you, does that sound like the God of the Bible? Does that sound like the understanding of the rest? Does that fit within the rest of the teaching as Jesus teaches who the Father is? See, I don't believe that character is God at all. In fact, that's what, this is what I believe. I believe this is the foil. That friend, the friend who's all tucked in, the friend with the door shut, the friend who's reluctant to help, that friend is the foil for God. So foil, in in literature, it it is this. It's a, a foil is a person or a thing that contrasts with and so emphasizes and enhances the qualities of another. So those of you that that like to enjoy or you enjoy to cook, you'll understand a foil says sometimes you'll make something that's really, really sweet, something that's decadent, and and then you'll add something like a a lemon curd. So you've got a cheesecake that's really, really rich and really sweet. And then as you eat this, though, now there's this raspberry topping or this lemon curd that goes along with it that's really tart and, you know, boom, makes your mouth sing. And that is the, that's the foil for the, for the richness and the decadence of the, of the thing. It, it highlights and accentuates it by being something that's contrasting, that's completely opposite. And they use that in literature sometimes. And that is what Jesus is doing here. 
He's contrasting who God is with this friend. See, God is not the friend who reluctantly comes to the aid of the friend in need, but this is who God is. God is a wealthy and resourceful friend who never sleeps or slumbers. He is always awake and he's always available and his door is always open. That is the contrast. And you and I, we need to cultivate an attitude that's congruent with that truth about God. Because here's what you and I, I think many of us, we do in prayer is we pray prayers like, like sometimes you send a text to someone. Like I know that me, I'm not, I'm not all that important. I'm not all that busy. But oftentimes people will text me and the first thing they'll say is, hey, I don't want to bother you. Hey, I don't want to be an imposition to you. Hey, I'm sorry to take up some of your time, but... And oftentimes you and I can have similar attitudes in prayer when it comes to God. We can say, God, I'm sorry. I don't want to be an imposition to you. Or God, I don't want to bother you. Or God, I know that you're really, really busy. Or God, maybe you're asleep. Or God, maybe you're tucked in. Or God, maybe the door is shut. And what Jesus is teaching here is you, as his child, you have constant access to God. You're never a bother. You're never an imposition to him. Come, ask, seek, knock. And what you're going to find is you're going to find a God who is willing and able to help you. So we have this word in here, this word that is used, that's uh, translated in the ESV Bible as impudence. Now, I got to be honest, I've I've said impudence one million times over the last couple of days, but it just started the last couple of days so that I would try to pronounce it correctly. Before that, I didn't use it. It's not a popular word that you and I use. So what does impudence mean? Well, there's a footnote in my Bible that says persistence. So maybe they're interchangeable. And it is a form of persistence. I think the Christian Standard Bible, if you're looking for a good translation that's a little more readable, a little less clunky, then the ESV, it's a great translation of the Bible. It's called the Christian Standard Bible. It's very reliable translation. And here's how it translates this word that's translated impudence. It translates it shameless boldness. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, but because of this friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and he will give him as much as he needs. Do you have that in prayer with God? A shameless boldness with God? Or do you shrink back? Do you think, God, what I'm about to pray, what I'm about to ask, what I'm about to say, what I'm about to request, God, it's not really, that must not be that important to you. Or I don't want to take up your time. Or do you have this idea of this shameless boldness here? See, what Jesus is saying is it's not rudeness when you have permission. It's not an imposition if you're invited, if you are welcomed. And that is what he's saying here to you. In fact, look at verse number nine and 10. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, you receive. The one who seeks, you find. The one who knocks and it will be opened. These are three imperative verbs and they all kind of build off of one another. You ask, that's kind of the first level where you say, God, it's me, and you know what I need. I could really use some help here. I could use some help with my spouse. I could use some help, and I could use some wisdom in how to uh, raise up my children. I could use some help of some patience here. I could use something, and you're saying just, God, I'm asking. But then there's a second level. 
The second level in the Greek, it means to strive after. It's, it's translated seek here. But it can also be understood as to demand. Now, not a demand way in, like, in that you make God your servant. Not like that at all. But it's, 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 the, it's the idea behind the language that you and I use here in Kentucky, where we say you gotta. You know, G-O-T-T-A. I didn't even look that up. I don't know that that's in the dictionary, but it's a real word, right? We say that all the time. Hey, you know what? You got to do this. I really need for you to do this. So it's not, it's a demand, but it's not a demand. It's like a polite demand. And in seeking, that's what we're doing. What we're saying is, God, I'm telling you, you got to, you got to help me. You got to listen to me. You got to give me wisdom. You got to save this, un- uh, this loved one of mine. You got to do it. You got to give me some peace. You got to help me out here. That's seeking after God. And God's inviting you to say, come to me and say, God, you gotta, you can do that. And then there's this third level and this third layer where he's saying, now knock. Now we're, now we're being good Axl Rose fans, Guns N' Roses. We're knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. That's what he's saying. Come to me banging on heaven's door. Come banging in here. And this is what he's saying. You, as my child, you have that kind of access, that kind of privilege that you can storm the gates of heaven in prayer and in faith, banging on the door of heaven, knowing that inside is a God who loves you, is willing and, and ready to help you. Now, sometimes you've got to be persistent in that. Sometimes it's not a magic formula that you work the formula and then after you work your formula, you get what you ask. No, sometimes you gotta be persistent in asking, but you got, but you can ask and you can keep coming and you can keep pulling as it it were on, um, on God's coattails or on his apron strings. See, the problem most of us have is that we know that kid, don't we? Or you were that kid or you have that kid or you married that kid, right? It just keeps asking with all the questions. What's with all the questions? Quit asking questions. And you're like, I don't want to be that kid with God. And what God's saying is, you can't be that kid with me. In fact, it's not just on you, because let's be honest, you're weak and you're needy and you can be all that. It's not in you. The problem is you're looking at you too much in prayer instead of looking at God. That's why we're starting here with who God is. And that's why there is a second parable that follows this up. So in the first parable, God is the resourceful friend. The door is always open. He's always inviting. You've got invitation. You've got access. But more than just a resourceful friend, not only is he a wealthy friend, but look in the second parable, he's a loving father. And he knows how to give good gifts to his children. Verse number 11, and what father among you? If his son asks for a fish instead of a fish, he gives him a serpent. And so this, the, he's not acting, asking for a pet fish here. He's asking for food. It's a similar illustration. The kid's hungry. There's a legitimate need here. And he goes to his father and says, dad, I'm really hungry. And says, what, what, kid, what father, instead of says, okay, son, close your eyes and stick out your hand. And instead of putting a fish in his hand, he puts a serpent in his hand. Now, some of you go like, oh, I might try that with my kids. No, no, no. That's, that's the part of you being evil. That's where that falls in. It's like no loving father is going to do that to his hungry child. Or a hungry child says, dad, I'm hungry. Will you fix me a, a hard-boiled egg? And instead of a hard-boiled egg, what he gets instead is a serpent that's all balled up in his hand. No, he's like, of course you're not going to do that. But what he says, he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to him as ask? 
What he's saying now is the same thing. It's a foil again. He's using it again, only this time we as broken and fallen parents, we're the contrast to God. Verse number 13, it's doctrinally rich. It really is. He says, you who are evil, that's total depravity. We really believe that. The contrast is us and God. We're the foil. Our hearts are evil and fundamentally flawed and fundamentally broken. And yet you and I as parents, we know how to take care of our children. We know how to give good things to our children. How much more does a perfect and righteous and holy God know how to give what we need and when we ask? We're fundamentally broken and yet we can do right things. How much more can a complete and whole and holy God do? We can be so impatient, but yet how, and yet we can still be patient with our children. And how much more can a perfectly patient father show compassion to his children and patience to his children? You and I, oftentimes we can lack compassion, but God never lacks anything. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, he says, when I pray, I must know that God is my father and that he delights to bless me and that he is much more ready to give than I am to receive, that he is always concerned about my welfare. Tis true. Tis absolutely true. But let me ask you, is that your attitude in prayer to God? When you think about the thrice holy God of the Bible, what do you imagine? What enters into your mind? When you think about, as we said last week, when you think about God's attitude toward you, what enters into your mind? Your knowledge, your attitude about who God is and who you are is foundational to your prayer life. Two more prayer is, is prayer is the God-appointed means by which we, his children, get supernatural help. That assumes a lot, doesn't it? It assumes that we're needy, and we are. If you can just live your best life now as you're living it without any of God's help, then you're not living the Christian life. You're living a life for the flesh and a life totally saturated into this world. I don't know about you, but I resonate with that first song that, or that second song that we sing, Lord, I need you. So I prayed again every hour. I need you, I need wisdom, and I need guidance, and I need help, and I need strength. I need you constantly. I'm praying, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. And prayer is God's appointed means by which his children get supernatural help. We'll hit that again on week three. But prayer is tapping into, if this is true, it's by the means by which we get supernatural help, then look, prayer is tapping into God's unlimited generosity and resources. See, as I said that verse number 13, it's doctrinally rich, but the statement that you who are evil, that's not all that surprising to me. I follow some of you on Facebook, so it's not all that surprising that Jesus would say, you who are evil, right? I mean, you follow me, you see the best and the worst, right? We know the best and the worst. We know this truth about ourselves. We know this truth about our heart. That's not the surprising part of the text. The surprising part of the text is the part about the Holy Spirit. He says, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. That's a surprising twist. It doesn't even say that you're praying and asking for the Holy Spirit. 
It says he gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, period. Not those who ask him for the Holy Spirit, you get the Holy Spirit. It's those who come and they ask, here's what they get. You get the Holy Spirit. That seems very bizarre that he would say that. That when you go to ask God for whatever you ask for, whatever it is, God gives you the Holy Spirit. Why then the Holy Spirit? Well, it's because of this, because the Holy Spirit is the source of everything that you and I need for life and godliness. In the Holy Spirit, everything that you and I need to live our life and a life of godliness is found in the Holy Spirit. And let me illustrate it like this. Borrow this, stole this from John MacArthur, but it's so right on, so true. Resonates deeply with my heart, and here's how it works out. You ask God for comfort, and he gives you the comforter. You ask God for help, and he gives you the helper. You ask God for truth, and he gives you the spirit of truth, the supreme teacher of truth, the spirit of truth. You ask for power, and he gives you the spirit of power. You ask for wisdom, and he gives you the spirit of wisdom. You ask for guidance, and he gives you the guide. You ask for love, or joy, or peace, or patience, or kindness, or goodness, or faithfulness, or gentleness, or self-control. And what does he give to you? He gives you the spirit whose fruit is being cultivated and harvested in your life, producing those very things. See, in this, we see the generosity of our father. You ask for the gift and he gives you the giver. You ask for the effect and he gives you the cause. You ask for the product and he gives you the source. That is generosity. That is the generosity of God. He gives you according to his riches, not out of his riches. You ask God as if it were, if you, as if you went into the bank and you asked the banker for some money, but the banker is the owner of the bank and instead of just giving you some money, he gives you the entire bank and that's the whole point here that Jesus is making. I will give you the Holy Spirit and then because you have the Holy Spirit, you have everything that you possibly can need for life and for godliness. See, the truth is about our salvation is the Father has purpose to save us. He has purpose to bless us, to take care of us. The Son has accomplished our blessing. He's accomplished and achieved everything that you and I need is found in Christ. As Paul writes in Ephesians 1.3, He, God, has blessed us in Christ with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have every single thing that you need. The Father has purposed it. The Son has accomplished it, achieved it by his perfect life substitutionary death, victorious resurrection, ascension on high where he's reigning and ruling, and now for the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit is applying all that the Father has purposed and all that the Son has accomplished in your life daily, daily, as you pray and you ask, as you seek, and as you, and as you knock, from the Holy Spirit comes everything that we need. From the Holy Spirit comes the anointing that teaches us all things. From the Holy Spirit comes giftedness with which we serve Jesus with. From the Holy Spirit comes fruit for us to live and to enjoy. From the Holy Spirit comes direction and guidance. From the Holy Spirit comes everything. And from the Holy Spirit comes intercession even on your behalf when you don't know how to pray, Romans 8, 26. It's the Spirit that's at work leading you, praying for you with even groanings that are too deep for words, Paul writes. 
in prayer, it cultivates the spirit. So may we cultivate the spirit. May we tap into God's unlimited power, unlimited resources, unlimited generosity by praying. And so let us pray even now. As Paul writes in Ephesians 13, and I'll pray this over us. For this reason, we bow our knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, Father, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner beings so that you, Jesus, may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, that would be our foundation is a deep understanding of love, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses our ability to understand, that we may be filled with the fullness of you, God. In your great name we pray. Amen.